Hello and welcome to the MS Improv Podcast, where we engage, where we are mindful, and we tell or share our stories. I'm Eric Chase. We are powered by GEM. Today's guest is a great person. He's a North Carolinian. He's a paramedic FTO, a thought leader and action taker. He's a blogger. It's the patient-centered paramedic blog. Um, he is also a current participant in the NAEMT Lighthouse Leadership um, Mentee Mentor Program which is a program uh, that lasts about 18 months where he has consistent mentoring from one person and then has access to all of the other mentors throughout that program as well. It's my delight and pleasure to welcome John Sammons to the EMS Improv Podcast. Welcome, John. Thank you, Eric. Nice to be here. Well, I appreciate uh, the opportunity for you to want to come and share and, and have a conversation with us and all the listeners. EMS has been a passion for you. Um, you have uh, Education is a, an associate's part in science um, in paramedicine, if I, if I remember correctly. Yes. And as an FTO, and you work for a very large um, uh, kind of urban and some rural, but a kind of a good mix, but a very large in, in the Southeast uh, EMS organization, correct? Correct. And that's the nice thing. We, we do go from urban to rural and everything in between. A very large county of a million plus people. So not only the population, the visitors, but also the, the geographic uh, distances from A to, to B. So being on your toes and, and being able to adapt and, and, and uh, have the awareness of, you know, best resources versus distance to and all that kind of thing always plays in mind. So uh, with your permission, I would love to really have a, a, an initial conversation and when I found out that you were a, a participant in the NAEMT leader, our Lighthouse Leadership uh, Project, um, that rings near and dear to my heart. And, and I know you as a historian of EMS and a student of EMS and a thought leader and an action taker. Um, James O. Page, uh, arguably a founding father and uh, a leading authority in US EMS, um, was also the one of the first founding publishers of GEMS, the Journal of Emergency Medicine. So that is really kind of a neat full circle for me to be having a conversation with somebody in a program that uh, Mr. Page really wanted to implement and he valued the mentee-mentor relationship and leadership development. And for you to be a participant actively and sharing some of what you're getting from, you know, the people that you're getting to engage with is gonna be really neat. But just a, a, a nod, uh, it's been 19 years since um, he died um, in 2004, but just uh, a lightning bolt and, and still a lanyard for us to look back to, and, and he was always looking forward. So um, wherever you'd like to kind of start with that, and, and what made your decision, or was it with your organization, they said, hey, I want you to do this, or how did you start? So I, so the program is 18 months long. We actually graduate, my cohort graduates in November, or excuse me, September in New Orleans. Um, so prior to getting, start, getting started, I said, you know what, I want to reach out, I want to branch out, I want to connect with others and network more. So I saw this program available and I applied. And you do a you know standard application and then an interview process with the um, with the original mentors. And, you know, they go through a selection process and you start this 18th month, 18 month program. You get assigned a mentor, uh, minus Steve Worth um, from. Uh, 
uh, from Paige, uh, Wolfberg and Worth. Um, so we've been working together for 18 months. Um, and you also get access to all of the other mentors in the program where you really take a dive into identifying your values and setting goals and, and working through them and working on them and networking with your other mentees. There's 10 of us in the current class and then another group just started. They, uh, there's 17 of them, I believe, with a whole new group of mentors and they're just getting started. I had the opportunity to meet with a few of them uh, the other day. Um, it was a great group, it was a great conversation. So looking forward to connecting with them more and networking with them more. Well, first and foremost, wow, what a, what a, a large country and a massive population and yet EMS is still such a small world. So as soon as you said Steve's name, uh, he and I are both Pennsylvanians. Uh, he actually uh, was one of the founding members of Emergicare up in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania, as you know. Uh, I went to Mercyhurst University. He went to Gannon University, their rival schools in Erie. Um, Steve is nothing but authentic and, and uh, what, a, what an amazing human being. Um, and, and one of the things that uh, you talk about values, and I want to touch base on that in a second and, and kind of get an idea of your values because I already know you're a good person and I already know that your mission, vision, and values for uh, patient-centered uh, paramedicine are, are, are a focus and, and I want to hear more about that from you. Sure, and you mentioned my blog, um, shameless plug, it's uh, ptcmedic.com. So it's, it's based on values and it's based on integrity and humility and honesty and doing the right thing even when everybody, it feels like everybody else is doing the wrong thing and, and clinical excellence and, and collaboration. I feel like sometimes we get in our bubble and we say we're trained in training. We're trained to be the alpha, you know, we are the paramedic on the call. I am the in charge. This is my call. This is my thing. And we need to get away from that a little bit and still have, yes, this is my call and this is my patient. I'm responsible but a more collaborative approach to patient care and a collaborative approach to other opinions and other thoughts and keeping our, our experiences diverse. You can't stay in your bubble. You need to reach out and see other viewpoints. And I think that is really important in the growth of the profession and the growth of yourself. Um, you know, in the Lighthouse program, I've seen, you know, I've gotten to network with people all, all over the country and hear their experiences and learn from them, which is, is like I said, really important. Hearing that it's really important and, and adaptability, collaboration, creativity, and, and you are singing my swan song um, with what we do with our trainings. It's, it's creating that safe psychological environment, that pro-social environment in order to share ideas, even, with, uh, even without agreement. So I accept John has an idea. Steve may even have ideas that you accept but may not agree with, and you don't know him. And, and this facilitates a learning and a really growing in, in observations uh, of, of other people's perspectives. And so that is really cool. Um, what was your impetus, motivation, desire? Um, you kind of talked about the process and how your cohort gets selected in that application. But what was, was there a turning point a, a specific decision or was this just kind of something you saw yourself doing and then you saw the opportunity and just said, I'm going to try, or was there something very specific that kind of pushed you that way? Um, it was nothing really specific. It was just, I saw the opportunity and went for it. I've always wanted to reach out more and you know, expand my network more. 
and just branch out. Um, I think it's true in a lot of experience where you kind of focus on your thing and you just focus on your truck and put your blinders on everybody, everything else. And you just go to work every day and kind of just stay in your lane. And I wanted to expand that a little bit. So staying in our lane for people that just go, you know what, for my mental health, my personal health, my emotional health, my whatever the case, if I say, if, if, if I can just stay in my lane, I can, you know, punch in, punch out. And, and that's what I needed to be safe. Uh, we're not going to cast any aspersions to anybody that makes that choice personally or professionally. Um, I have a question with that being in mind. Um, desiring other perspectives requires us at times to maybe get out of our comfort zone to ask for, for help or ask for other people's consideration. And you said something uh, earlier, humility, to, to maybe admit that I don't know what I don't know. And and, and put ourselves out there being a leader as you are um, by, by being a field training officer, specifically you're a leader, but also by your actions um, outside of your title, you know, looking to engage with other people and new perspectives across the country within your own region. Um, so developing that mindset, even when it may be uncomfortable, um, have there been times when it's been uncomfortable for you and there's a, a tool or a technique or a mechanism that helped kind of give you or create a safer space for you to, you know, jump off the cliff, maybe, if you will? So not really for, for me, I've, I've, I've learned over the years in my twenties, I was a little more reactive and not afraid to speak my mind in my thirties and now forties. Um, there's tactical ways to speak your mind and kind of get your point across. I read a book recently um, called Why We Act, Turning Bystanders into Moral Rebels. It's by uh, Catherine Sanderson. And in it, it's all about social psychology and not being afraid to say something. You know, you're you're in a room and somebody says an off-color joke that you're like, mm, I, don't, I don't know if that was right. But you don't want to say anything because nobody else does. And you think everybody else is okay with this. Meanwhile, everybody else is saying, oh, man, I don't, I don't know if that was okay. By having the confidence to say that wasn't right and then everybody else says you know what that wasn't right and it shuts it down so being able to stand up for yourself and your personal beliefs and stand up for other people is is something that's come with time for me and, and self-confidence but it's also something that we need to instill in our younger folks to say you know what i'm not okay with this or i'm not comfortable and making that safe space for them so i love hearing that you know, as we continue to train and we continue to, to provide education, there's this voluminous gap between knowledge because it's so easy to teach for knowledge, to put, you know, bullet points out there and to put a curriculum out there and to have rote memorization to pass a test, right? That standardization uh, for competency. And, and I'm all about competency. And, and, and yet, where are the affective skills? Where, where is the the essential skills is, is a lot of us what might call them and, and developing that opportunity to feel like you can say something when other people might not. So I want to, I, I went to a conference, did a couple of presentations uh, recently and I had a physician was, was one of the attendees and, and um, a relatively new medical director for his organization. 
in a relatively new medical director, or a brand new medical director, period. Um, and he was riding out with uh, his team. And he's not in operations, he's obviously clinical. And yet he was asking me, he saw this behavior witness, uh, particularly at two, three, four in the morning, where maybe patient-centered care was not optimally being done. And to not be that hammer and to not, you know, immediately want to lead with the stick. Um, you know, he asked, and, and after our presentation, what are some other ways that you may be able to get this person to, to see without hammering them that maybe what they're doing or saying or how they're treating another human being is maybe not as effective as they could. I offered my ideas and, and we'll touch upon that, but since you have a great men, uh, mentor in Steve uh, specifically, if something like that were to come up uh, and playing back some of the conversations you've had, even with uh, a person that you've been training or that maybe even trained you, what would be a conversation um, as a leader that you are that you might share with, with somebody that brought that to you? If it's a new person that's coming to me, you know, their first time in their field training, I have a first day conversation and it's, it's all about my expectations and it's about, you know, how we're going to do things. Not necessarily all my way, but it's, it's that we're going to be treat people with respect. And we have a conversation that we're not going to fix the broken healthcare system in the back of our ambulance. We said, I just had a text from a friend of mine that said, you know, man, folks are wearing me down you know most of the patients we go to don't need us well well do they do they don't need do they not need us there's so many issues and so many social issues that affect why people call 911 that it's not our place to say they don't need us when the system is so broken if i don't have a car how am i getting to the er if i don't have insurance where am i seeking care if generationally i have been taught that i call 911 when i need help I'm calling call 911. Um, and one of the uh, one of my fellow mentees in the program with me, he had a good quote. Um, and, uh, and he actually wrote for my blogs, the last letter in EMS stands for service. Sometimes we provide medical services and sometimes it's social services. Regardless, it's our job to take care of people and their needs when they call us. And I'm going to give that quote. That's Casey Smith. He works down in Southwest Florida. And uh, yeah, it's perfect. The last S in EMS stands for service, and that's what we do. So bravo, Casey Smith down in Florida. Um, I hope to get to meet you and shake your hand one day. That That's beautiful and, and wonderfully articulated. Um, John, for, for that point, so understanding that it was that new person, um, and it could be a new person, it could be that grisly old gray-haired guy like me that we're trying to take on too many battles. And I love that thought process because what can we truly control and that adaptability and, and that um, being our, our authentic selves. And is my authentic self just going to be grumpy and mean because it's the same address at three o'clock in the morning? Or am I still just going to do the right thing and care for them appropriately um, and, and not let me get in the way of, of, of that care? So one of the things that I shared with this position was, have you thought about coaching? And when we talk about stories, a lot of coaches or people that are engaged, you know, say, man, that was really tough. You know, three o'clock in the morning for that, that's a tough call, um, you know, for us all to get up on and, and just share that relational perspective, you know, that, that immediate kind of, I get 
what I feel that I thought you were feeling without calling it out specifically. Um, you know, because I try to learn or I, I hope to learn, um, barring, you know, having grandchildren here and try to do it lovingly, always with, with respect and kindness, but, um, but still being firm, fair, and consistent. With, with somebody like that, I said, you know, obviously you're coming to me and you ask this question because you don't want to, you don't want to be the stick. You don't want to immediately say, I've got to do X, Y, or Z. Um, if this person buys into that this is or was a difficult time, they may say, you know what, and, and I'm just not getting sleep. Uh, they may tell you that they have a, a new child at home that you are unaware of. They, they may tell you that there's some other struggle in their, in their, in their relationship, both be it at work or anywhere else. So with all of that being said, if we take time to see that person as a human being as well, and, and as I hear you do likely as a field training officer, you're looking at them as an opportunity to care for them, to mentor them as well, because you're using your experiences and then you can have shared experiences to grow your values and, and integrity with humility. So how, how is that a big thing that, that happens for you, uh, sharing humility, even when you have to be a leader? I think one of the best parts about, you know, paramedics and EMTs is we're pretty good at reading people. And if, if you're not humble and show humility and you're always right, always right, always right, even when you're wrong, as a leader, you're going to lose the respect of your people even quicker. If you can take a step back and say, you know what, maybe you're right. Let's, let's talk about this and I can learn from you. That's going to get you more respect in the long run. And you don't know everything. I've been in EMS for 24 years. I learn something every day. And, you know, my agency is fortunate enough. We get people from all over the country and various experience levels. And I might learn something from my trainee. You know, hopefully I teach them something too, but they, they're probably going to teach me something along the way. And that's how you grow. If you're stuck in your own head that I know everything, you're not going to grow. You know, one of the, the things you hear is, oh, you've changed. Over the past five years or the past 10 years, you've changed. Well, if you haven't changed in the past five or 10 years, you haven't grown. And and that's that's a fault. You should change after five, 10, even one year you can change as long as you're changing for the better. It, it's interesting hearing that. Um, I had a, uh, what helped mold me was my own health issues. Uh, having been transported in an ambulance in Ohio, Colorado, Oklahoma, and as well as a HEMS or a, a air medical um, helicopter, uh, I, I started seeing it from a different perspective. And I always thought that I was, you know, kind, caring, uh, clinically competent. Um, and yet relationally, I, I was more transactional and, and, and I was operating in a silo. And some of that was out of fear and anxiety and some of it was out of hubris. And at the same time, I wasn't intending to be a jerk or, a, you know, a bleep hole. Um, but was I not not trying to do that? So what was I being proactive and not being that person? And so seeing healthcare from a personal perspective where empathy, whether I wanted it or not, it came flooding in uh, through my own experiences. So then I had the ability to then sit back differently and realize that we can be overwhelming in our posture, our staccato language, our our inability to, or my wife would say, failure to validate um, 
you know, a person, a patient, a peer, a subordinate, and all those types of things. And, and to me, that's, again, normalizing accountability conversations. And to your point, when you talked about somebody making uh, an off-color comment and everybody feeling cringy inside, but not, not one person really feeling that, that strength in, of leadership, even, even in vulnerability, to say, hey, that wasn't okay. Um, and, and we stop it right there, um, barring it being really immoral, super unethical, or illegal. You know, then obviously other courses of action happen. 24 years of experience, you have an education, you continually train, and you've asked for mentoring. People are going to say the hubris in John because he's done that. Who does he think he or she is when people do these types of things? Because a lot of us, and, and I, I, I'm just going to ask you, have you ever felt the imposter syndrome? Where? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you get that, right? Oh, Despite yeah. <laughs> all your training and education and years of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we say hurt people hurt people, uh, and, and even though we shouldn't, because we know better, most of us, um, psychologically, morally, ethically. But if I'm scared already, and I'm just emboldened because of a patch or a title or a position, that's going to be incongruent with my actions and behaviors, and it's going to be inauthentic to the people I'm interacting with. And you said something that really uh, gave me goosebumps and, 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 and made the hair in a good way stick up on the back of my head. But it's how people feel. And, and I can tell that that's something you care about. So did you experience in, in your personal, professional, family life something that really uh, required you to make a paradigm shift like it did for me, like in my own personal stuff or anything that you're willing to talk about in that regard? Or was this something that, you know, because of your upbringing, the people that you've worked with, they've just always kind of created that pathway for you to, to feel that comfortable. So growing up, uh, my mom was always sick. There'd be days coming home from, you know, walking home from the school bus and, you know, the ambulance be sitting in the driveway. So I was around healthcare growing up you know, for as long as I can remember. And then I started in EMS when I was 17 and started in the fire service at 17, 18. And just seeing the interaction with other people I looked up to and with their patients and learning from really good nurses and doctors in the ER I worked in and EMTs and paramedics that I've worked with. Um, and then... Yeah, just knowing and being brought up to treat people right. You know, it, it doesn't matter your background or, you know, who you are or what you are. I'm going to treat you right. And that's just how I was brought up. For people that don't have a story like you or I, they still have a story. Mm -hmm. and, and, and for good, bad, or good, bad, or worse, or exceptional, um, it can really shape or mold our actions, attitudes, and behaviors and, and minimize or project our values, be they positive or negative, um, so overwhelmingly. And, and we, you know, we know scientifically and psychologically that positive traits or negative traits, uh, whether they be in that room where that, that uh, off-color joke was made um, or at three o'clock in the morning on the, on the ambulance, the bus, the rig, the rescue, whatever people around the country call them, um, that that one positive 
light, that soul, that that humanity can effectively start turning and changing through that consistency, um, how the people around us interact. And, and since we know scientifically and psychologically that that can happen, um, when you've had a tough day, when you've had a tough week, when things in life uh, at home aren't going as well as we hope for them, and maybe we've put them on a delusional level and, and where we expect to be versus where we truly can be in the moment. Um, and and the, those horrible calls, um, Oklahoma City uh, and EMSA, Oklahoma City Fire, they just had a, a double drowning of a 10 and 11 year old um, where they rescued, rescued two, two of the four young, uh, young boys. But um, so knowing as that comes up and that empathy and even the battalion of the district chief was in tears, uh, you know, appropriate for the moment, uh, not more than what a parent would be, but obviously you could see that they were feeling that. Uh, buffering real emotions, real humanity, uh, that empathy, sympathy kind of juxtaposition, um, giving energy and effort, having wisdom and discernment as to who should get more of it versus less of it. Not that you're going to be ugly to any person, but how do you make that determination as a, as a leader, um, not only in your family, but at work as a field training officer, that some people, they just, your, your discernment meter is just going, okay, I'm not going to be mean or a jerk to this person, but there's a different level of accountability that they need versus the person B over here. You know, kind of differentiating that and maybe some of the walks you would do. I don't know if there's a whole lot of differentiation. I think, obviously, you know, if there's grave you know, potential for the patient. Obviously, um, there's going to be more of an effort to take care of the family while we're taking care of the person, right? It, some of the best, unfortunate, but best um, thank yous and kudos I've gotten is from families where we've taken care of their loved one in a cardiac arrest. And unfortunately, their loved one didn't make it, but the the family reaches out to us and says, you know what, I, I really appreciate how you took care of us and, you know, I know everything was done and I know that, you know, you guys care. And those are obviously the, the really big ones. But I think, you know, from, from that to taking little Meemaw to the hospital because she has a, a, a sore elbow and making sure that, you know, her cat's fed, her door's locked, her oven's off. I think there's just, it's the same empathy and the same feeling just portrayed in a different way. I think you have to show it for, the full scope, just differently. So I like that um, from a standpoint of the perspective changes on how you give it, and yet empathy is empathy is empathy. Um, and ultimately service, right? Um, and then patient-centered is your pod, or your, it's a blog, as your blog uh, illustrates. Coming to, uh, and, and Randolph Mantooth, everybody will know that name. Um, I had been doing some reading and, and listened to him. Uh, he was on Stephen Cohen's Medic to Medic podcast. Uh, 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 an amazing story, you know, that's uh, Rescue Squad 51, Emergency, um, all that kind of stuff. And, and one of the things that he had said in the last uh, few years, probably five at this point, 
is he would still be asked to come to departments and agencies and do ride-alongs and stuff like that. He saw a discernible change in how we treated people, and he was not pleased with with the things he was seeing in a lot of ways. Always, there's always a shining star, and there's always the brilliance, you know, the the um, the stars of life recipients, and then the unsung recipients that will never get that, but always are consistently doing great, great work. But if a Randolph Mantooth is, is coming and doing a ride-alongs and, and he, in his writing, said, it caught me off guard that I'm there and I'm still witnessing these behaviors. Um, what are some of the things you're hearing uh, from the people around the country that you're engaged with that might be different than what I'm engaged with? So uh, action, action points maybe that uh, we as in the EMS uh, mobile medicine industry need to be really considering or doing or being more vocal or action oriented about what you know circling back around to you know how people are interacting the story out of illinois where those two medics emts i'm not sure what their level was were charged with murder and the death of that gentleman the videos were just beyond disturbing made me nauseous because these folks are on video this is the one we know about how are they treating people that aren't like, how are they treating people we don't know about? Um, and man, it just comes back to culture. There's somebody along the way has to have has said that this is okay. It is okay to act like this. And it comes back to culture and it comes back to not just senior leadership. It comes back to the frontline supervisors, FTOs, the, sen the senior people on the shift to set the culture and set the tone of this is how we're going to treat people. And this is, this is the way we do things here and, and creating a, a system and a culture that says, Hey, this isn't what we do. This isn't how we do this here. And having the confidence to say that, no, this isn't right. And I think that's hard in a, especially if you're young coming into the system or into the profession to say, man, this doesn't feel right. We shouldn't be doing this to say something is, is impossible. So what do these folks do? They leave and we go, man, why can't we retain people? Well, maybe it's because we're setting a bad example and it's, we're setting, we're creating a culture that says, you know what, maybe, maybe two years is enough of this and, and they leave. So culture, both ways, both perspectives. So I heard you earlier mention that if you happen to be in a room and you heard the off color joke and there's four or five, seven, 12 people in the room, could be one other person. Uh, and, and we fail to, by title or otherwise, say something, that, that low level of accountability. Um, so hearing what you're saying, my guess would be or I surmise that uh, culture is allowing it to happen because people haven't been held accountable. And at some point, another fire, another issue, another social, emotional, spiritual issue has happened with people or persons in leadership by title and or uh, should be by action, um, have obfuscated their responsibility in some way by failing to hold people accountable. Um, if the uh, National Volunteer Fire uh, Council um, Summit here in Oklahoma City a couple weeks ago, uh, I attended and, and one of the big conversations was retention. And obviously they do a lot of EMS as well. And people like volunteers still do AMS. Yes, volunteers still do AMS. Um, and we're seeing a trend where there probably is going to be less and less of that because we're seeing paid agencies shuttering and, and closing doors. Um, 
But one of the questions I asked of all these chiefs, there's probably 75 uh, uh, chiefs, uh, chief officers in here. How many of you are not currently holding someone accountable because your numbers aren't sufficient to make the calls throughout you know, your, your week or your, your year? And three quarters of them raised their hand um, they they know that they're not holding people accountable to the levels and the standards and the culture that has once been set by the forefathers and and the people that that came before them, uh, and I applaud their vulnerability and, and their leadership in saying that. And yet they were all there looking for ways to improve. And ultimately, the the, the conversation came back down to we have to normalize accountability conversations, the addition by subtraction method. People that don't need to be there will walk themselves out the door. The people that you want there that left after the 18 months, 24 months, that are your good character, your good values, you know, your mission-driven, your patient-centered providers um, that are going to care, uh, they're the ones that are going to be emboldened then to speak up when that off-color joke comes in or when, you know, people aren't pulling their weight in, and there's that, you know, the weekly or the monthly meetings. And they say, you know, Tim, Sue, Jeff, Bob, Tina, you know, um, so it doesn't have to even come from the chiefs. When, when we're emboldened as a rank and file, as a line level staff or a field training officer to speak up, that really changes the whole paradigm and it's leadership from every level. Um, oftentimes managers are horrible leaders. Um, and, and we think, you know, because again, it's a hubris or we're operating in a vacuum where it's uncomfortable to be vulnerable. And I love you sharing your vulnerability and yet you have courses of action. And so the next question is, is if something doesn't work, you just give up, right, John? You, you just oh, like, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> with, with every problem in life, you just ignore it until it goes away. Right. Perfect. And then, yeah. And fine. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think, you know, when issues come up or problems come up, we have a pretty robust training department. Um, if I have an issue with, a trainee, I have the experience to have conversations and upfront conversations. I think that's the biggest, the biggest part of avoiding conflict and avoiding stress and avoiding issues is to have upfront conversations. Like I said, the first day somebody comes to ride with me, we have a conversation of expectations, right? We're going to be respectful. We're going to treat people right. We're going to take them to the hospital they want to go to, unless it's covered by a triage and destination plan. And we're going to do the right thing. We'll figure everything else out. You know, I can teach you how to do the medicine, right? But you need to be a good person first. If there's issues from there, it's it's just open and honest communications, part of adulting, right? We need we need to have open and honest conversations, and and if that doesn't work, we need to loop in, you know, senior people to handle it from there. But we can't lower standards to fill a seat. That's that's just not how it, it should work when we're taking care of people. In organizations that are having, uh, not having, excuse me, sustainability issues and, 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 and uh, staffing issues consistently are doing it the way you, you describe it by creating that opportunity where there's active listening and active feedback and not listening just to respond and, and uh, empowering people to have a voice. Um, it may be a systems issue. It may be a clinical issue. And yet, if I have a clinical issue and you as an FTO, I would, you know, I would want to be able to call you first, John, and say, hey, I made a mistake because I remember how John treated me the very first day he met me 
and John will help walk me through who I need to report my uh, either near miss, your actual error, or your question about whether you did or didn't err. And you know, if it's an operations issue, uh, in, in, in many cases, it's, it's both an operations and a clinical over, overlap, particularly when you're talking about medications in certain ways, and particularly narcotics or anything that's locked up. Um, so creating that environment, again, uh, it, you can teach them what they need to know operationally, SOPs, SOGs, protocols. Good humanity, good people skills, we're not teaching in, in, in education classes. Um, you either have to have it ingrained in you or you are getting it now in, in an NAEMT program uh, on how to even be better and develop those effective skills and have those conversations when uh, it's really low hanging fruit because there's not anybody, there's no life or death issues in the exigency or the immediacy when you're having a conversation with Steve Worth. You can tell him anything ask him any questions because there's no failure going to happen. And if there was, we, we can still overcome that as long as the system and the tools and the culture and the leadership are in place to, to resolve the issues, right? And creating that just culture and that system of trust and being able to have those conversations is important. It's a two-way street. You know, I, I have that upfront conversation and then, you know, at the end of whatever work cycle we have, what can I, I say to them? What can I be doing better for you? You know, is there is there ways that I could be helping you better? Is there ways that, you know, I can provide feedback better? Can I provide for, more feedback, less feedback? What do you need from me? Um, I've told people in the past that, you know, if we if we run into trouble, we'll get through it. Um, I don't get anybody fired. That's not my job. But, you know. We're, we'll work through issues and we, we do have a just culture in my system where mistakes do get reported and you know there's re-education or there's like you said a systems issue or an engineering issue that needs to be fixed but you can't hide problems because that's how they snowball so speaking of hiding problems and, and whether you heard about this or not but relatively recently in colorado has just seemed to be in the news in a loop with the ms because of ketamine and and other issues, but um, uh, Aurora, and, and I know a lot of guys that are, uh, have been on that department. I was a firefighter in, in uh, uh, north of Colorado Springs, south of Denver area. And um, to my point, they, they have, and I, and I looked up their protocol because I, you know, so many people were asking, but a, a patient apparently was in uh, DKA, um, was gonna be an ICU patient, you know, as we know, and they took, that patient like 13, 14 miles from uh, the University Medical Center, which is minutes from where they were in Aurora, uh, down to Parker. Um, so all of that to say it was outside of that patient's uh, medical coverage area. And there may or may not have been an issue with whether there was divert statuses and other things. And, and and Colorado in that area has a, is it, it's an interesting, and I can't even remember the name of it right now, um, program where there's like an observer role that watches like the statuses and that person determines hospital destinations. And you, you kind of have something relatively similar in, in North Carolina. Um, 
or where you've been in North Carolina, and I've been uh, in Southeast as well. So um, what would you say to, is that a systems error? Uh, because, you know, people are automatically initially saying without all the information, they were jerks, they should have to pay, they were responsible for this issue. Maybe there was a somebody telling them or the board said they can't go to this facility. This is the next closest, most appropriate facility. What do you do when there's so much information, but you don't have all the facts yet? And what should a leader I think, do? I, th I think, you know, from what I know about it now, I'm going to steal the Samantha Johnson quote from, uh, from her podcast. It depends. Um, I think it depends on what their, their protocols were. If, if their protocol was, nope, we take you to this facility based on this level status in our system, if they were within protocol, okay is that a system issue absolutely and should that have been a conversation up front with that patient and their family 100 percent. what is the frustration begins where communication ends Ooh, right bingo um, go ahead yeah so having that upfront conversation with family even if it's a nursing home hey get the family on the phone let's make sure we're getting the destination right because it is important it matters for their you know, their medical home where their physicians are for billing for you know if the family only knows that miss smith is going goes every time she goes to wake med every time that's where she goes and then she goes to a different hospital um <laughs> um she goes to a different hospital this time well are they going to be able to find her do they know where she went so keeping everybody on the same page is the best way to just reduce frustration, reduce this on the back end, becoming a problem. It, to, so to hear that, and, and there's so many times and, and hearing nursing home patient one, you know, you get there and staff's like, they're going to such and such Valley hospital, or they're going to da 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 da, -da mothership of that system. And, and I always will say, before I leave this parking lot, a firefighter or my partner will come and tell you where we're going. Um, I know that this is the desired place and based upon the patient's condition and their ability to take care of that patient, uh, barring us being at you know, hospitals, being on divert status and, and whether it be, unless it's a level one trauma, you know, uh, you know, stroke, STEMI, that type of thing where they will then you can go there regardless. But communication, and how crazy is that? Um, is it because, again, we haven't been taught that that's important? Because we know if we're not communicated with how, uh, how frustrating it is and how angry we, or upset we can get individually. Um, and, and this is a person in their family that maybe has been dealing with a system, a, a broken system, you know, honorable but broken, whether it be EMS or healthcare in general. Um, failure to communicate, I think, has been our biggest downfall uh, with our staff, you know, when it comes to why we're making decisions, why we can't give raises, why this patient's going to go there, why our, our protocols are this, even though the national standard says that, you know, it's going to be four milligrams, uh, up maximum of six, four up front, you know, if it's pre-eclampsia or uh, post-eclamptic seizures uh, or, or as a prophylactic seizure if they're eclamptic. Um, 
but some protocols are like, you can only give a milligram. And I'm like, when are we going to, you know, is it physician hubris at this point? And even then, if I'm not involved clinically, um, or if I don't have direct patient control or a doctor physician oversight telling me what I can do and then documenting that in my record. Um, but ultimately it comes down to communication. How do we break that communication cycle and, and, and where, whether it is or isn't different from speaking up with that off color joke or, you know, being vulnerable with your, your mentor or being uh, strong and vulnerable with a, uh, a, a trainee that you have, um, where does that communication loop begin and end? And, and how would you overcome those hurdles? Uh, or how have you overcome those hurdles when you felt them? So I think it's important to not only communicate, but communicate well. And you mentioned earlier, listening, not just to respond, but listening to understand. And I think we need to not focus on telling people you need to do A, B, C. We need to tell people why A, B, C is important and tell them why we need to make decisions and say, and make them understand, right? Be, and have buy-in from all levels. As an administrator, I can say, you're gonna do this, A, B, C. And then, you know, your senior people or your FTOs are gonna say, I ain't doing that. Well, what's everybody gonna do? Is everybody gonna say, oh no, I'm gonna go do what the administration says? No, I'm gonna do what the senior guy says because that's who everybody looks to. So making sure you have buy-in from all levels I think is important in explaining why. Um, Start with why is another good book if you haven't read that, or even um, mm -hmm. Simon Sinek's uh, TED Talk. Oh yeah, and uh, absolutely love that, and, and love Simon Sinek, um, and I love his conversation with Brene Brown as well um, on the vulnerability piece. Um, as we're kind of coming to a close of this conversation. Um, you, you bring up so many valuable points and you, you do so with remarkable aplomb and ease. Um, was, where were your biggest learning hurdles and curves uh, to get to and develop? And, and, you know, you said if you're not changing even every year uh, for the better, there, there's an issue, but certainly changing within, you know, every five to 10 years, you know, uh, developing our humanity and empathy and our clinical competencies and everything else um drilling back down to to you versus that forty thousand foot picture and and where we can get upset with or question why somebody else did something um if all we're coming up with with is uh solutions and and we're absent the fact that we also contribute to parts of the, the problem at times by ineffectiveness attitude uh, whatever else the case may be, if we're only showing ideas and, and not failing ourselves and learning and growing, um, what what are some of the limitations uh, to what we want to do are there, for, if that makes any sense? Um, we're trying to learn and grow and we're continuing to try to evolve and, and honor people like, um, you know, the Freedom House paramedics and James O'Page and, and, and the people that came before us and, and learned and worked in, in, in many cases, vastly more horrific environments, um, you know, with racism and, 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 and other 
issues, sexism, and, and things that you and I might not have to deal with as, as much. Um, so hurdles, overcoming them, personal stories, uh, something to kind of drill down from that 40,000 foot level to shine a light into, um, you know, start with why the S in EMS is, is for service, your patient-centered paramedic, bringing it down, uh, back to the John Salmon's, you know, thought leader, action taker, paramedic, FTO, great human level. Something that if this person that's listening right now, um, nurse, physician, paramedic, EMT, firefighter, uh, general public, you know, because people always are intrigued by what we do and, and how we think and, and that. Have a conversation with, with our listeners uh, and kind of encapsulate the, the vision of EMS that you would like to see and be a part of and are becoming a part of as a, as a leader uh, and, and continuing to embolden yourself and, and engage and collaborate with people. So this is kind of your opportunity to, to shine out there and, because and, uh, you already are shining, but just, but to have many, many, many more people here and maybe take one of those pearls of wisdom um, and, and make it a growth opportunity for them as well. I think one of the biggest things to remember is that we're a people business. You know, I remember being 18 years old, grind on the ambulance. And back in the day, it was two cycles of CPR on the AED and you load up and left. So it was you, your patient in the back of the ambulance, and that was it. And you were just doing CPR. And when I was young, I always said, you know, I never really realized that it was a person. It was a person, but it wasn't. Um, it was, you know, rescue Andy, rescue Randy. I'm doing CPR. We're going to the hospital. The first time I worked at cardiac arrest in the hospital, um, the family was sitting outside of the curtain, screaming, don't die. We need you. And I think that really, like, opened my eyes to this is a people business. This patient, no matter who it is, we might roll our eyes. At, well, I don't roll my eyes at 3 a.m. First, because I don't work night shift. And second, because I wouldn't. Um, and say, God, this person doesn't need to call 911. This person doesn't need to see her. Well, they do. You don't know their story. You got dispatched to their call five minutes ago. You've known them for now 15 minutes by the time you get on scene. You don't know their story. You don't know where they came from. Everybody deserves to be treated like a person. Um, it's hard. It's frustrating. We run like crazy all day. But just because you're frustrated, you don't get to take it out on the other person. Um, I'll give a, a quote from another coworker of mine. He wrote on my blog, uh, Aaron Gibbs. He's one of our uh, advanced par practice paramedics. Probably will be a district chief in the next uh, promotional cycle. Deservedly so. He's a good guy. He says, you're an EMT or a paramedic. Your job is to do your best to preserve life. Within that objective, there is no room for moral subjectivity. Everyone who gets in your ambulance gets treated the same because everybody is somebody, someone. If you can't find any compassion for your patient, you can always find compassion for the person who cares about your patient. There's always someone somewhere who will be upset or scared or sad if, if your patient doesn't make it home. The person will always deserve your best, no matter what, even if you don't think your patient does. And that was Aaron? Yep, Aaron Gibbs. Wow, Aaron, that was um, beautiful. And I wanna 
say thank you for that as well and sharing it with uh, the masses on on John's um, blog. I, I want to thank you also for sharing that because I think that kind of brings everything really full circle uh, for our, our conversation. John, I know you're going to be doing a lot of good things and you have done a lot of good things. Um, I don't know, short of, you know, each of us setting our own personal goals and metrics for where we feel comfortable and successful um, are. I just want to say it's been an honor uh, having you share with me and, and our audience through GEMS uh, and Fire Engineering, uh, kind of your purpose, your mission, your value. Uh, because one of the things that I, I feel in you is you, is you you own your dignity. And, and one of the things that I want to relate that back to is each person and kind of hearing Aaron's words and your words and Steve's words and Samantha's that, that you know, you're, you're a collaborator and, and you haven't gotten to this level of understanding and action by operating in that silo. You've been supported by so many other people and ideas and thoughts and literature uh, and, uh, you know, listening to people. So, uh, a, a big tip of the cap to you and, 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 a, and, a, and, a, and a big round of applause and kudos for uh, giving me a perspective again. And I have been with my pacemaker being put in and then shoulder surgery and being in my mid fifties, uh, been on leave. Uh, I, I've missed the patient time. And so you have, you have given me uh a little joy back uh, through hearing how you and the people that you are working with are caring for the people that you care for and how you are going to exhibit that leadership silently or emboldened through your, your words and actions uh, to be a good example and to set a good standard. So I just want to say thank you to that. Um, ladies and gentlemen, this is the EMS Improv podcast where um, we have engaged, we have tried to be mindful and uh, we have heard and shared and told some stories. Uh, my guest has been John Sammons. I look forward to more conversations and, and continue to follow you on social media. You're on LinkedIn and it is John Sammons, S-A-M-M-O-N-S, correct? So if people yep. want to engage with you and uh, again, um, grateful that the NAEMT has programs uh, like the Lighthouse Leadership Participant Program uh, and, and they're not the only ones, uh, Wolf Page Worth and, and what is it? Wolf Page Worth and what's Steve's, uh, office or company name, Wolf Page Worth and, or may, that is all, that is what it is, right? Wolf Page Worth. Um, maybe it's not, uh, sorry, Steve. Um, but there are no, organizations, there are people that, that are pushing, um, and, and I know we both know them and, and, uh, I'll give you the last, you know, minute two to just say what you'd like to say. And, and I just thank you again for your time and, and for all the listeners um, for continuing to care about people and the perspectives that uh, we can learn and grow. And, and I want to let you know that what you're feeling, I validate. And John and I see you. And if you ever need to reach out to either one of us for advice or, or to get in contact with people that have different levels of perspective and advice that we can give, we would also be happy to do that. So John, I'll, I'll let you have the last couple of minutes. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to come talk to you. Um, and yeah, reach out, talk. I love to collaborate. I love to talk about stuff. Um, yeah, look me up on LinkedIn. 
uh, look up my blog. It's ptcmedic.com. Reach out. Love the chat. All right. So reach out, engage, be mindful, share, and tell your stories. Until our next opportunity, um, be well, take care of yourselves, and know that you're loved. Thank you.